If you're wondering what those funny sounds are, it's just the Yarra River on a Saturday morning. This week, the Medical Republic has decided to attend the pathology update for 2019. If anything, please bear with us, because we're about to prove that pathologists aren't the only ones doing the tests around here. After all, we've crossed state lines to bring you this episode. I'm Francine Crimmins, a journalist with the Medical Republic, and this week I'm reporting live from the RCPA's annual conference. Yeah, so I'm down in Melbourne, and you can probably already smell the superior coffee. And trust me, coffee is all you're going to be wanting to be sipping during this episode, because we're about to talk foodborne disease and all the nasties that go along with it. Our first guest today is Dr. Tom Chiller. Let's catch up with him now. So I'm Tom Schiller. I'm an infectious disease physician. Um, I work currently at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, where I uh, run the fungal diseases group, and I also work on foodborne, waterborne, and environmental diseases, where I'm the associate director for global programs. So yesterday you were talking about infectious diseases here at the conference. Do you want to maybe give a bit of a background of your study in this area? At the conference, I've been having a great time talking about fungal infections and foodborne infections. Uh, I think particularly yesterday, um, we were talking earlier that I was, uh, I was talking about some of the, you know, the new and old problems we've had in, 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 in foodborne diseases over the last year. So you were talking about the way that we collect this data, how it's gone from a model where it's very singular and you look at single outbreak events, and then now through very complex uh, messaging systems between uh, different areas and then across whole countries. Could you maybe talk a little bit about PulseNet and how that works across the states? Absolutely. So PulseNet really revolutionized the way we investigate uh, foodborne outbreaks. So what is PulseNet? PulseNet essentially stands for Pulse Field Gel Electrophoresis. So this is taking an isolate running it on a gel, so slicing it up with an enzyme, running it on a gel, which gave us a fingerprint of what that isolate looked like. And that was developed back in 1996, and it started with a number of states in the United States, and then it rapidly expanded to around 80 different sites that were pulsing, first salmonella, and then they added other enteric bacteria. And what that really did, it was a it was a cha- it was a game changing event for how we were able to investigate widespread foodborne disease outbreaks. Instead of the typical church supper where you had a hundred people, they went to a church supper, they went to some other event, fifty of them got sick, and you, you investigated it. It was the chicken salad, it was the fruit salad, it was some problem. Now we could actually get isolates from all over the United States compare them, compare their fingerprint, and realize they were related. And suddenly we were actually detecting these, what we call multi-state outbreaks, where there was a food vehicle or some other vehicle, some other contaminant um, that, as, that, that was actually causing these multi-state outbreaks. And of course, as we know, food is, is not just a local thing. Food is imported, exported all over. And certainly there are big companies that produce food and send it all over the United States and the world. And so being able then to link these illnesses that we never could do before really revolutionized the way we investigate outbreaks. What PulseNet has done now is it's gone into the molecular era. So now everyone hears about 
whole genome sequencing. So you take a pathogen's genome and you sequence the whole thing. You, so you basically get it all the way down to the to the to the um, base pairs, and you can look at this thing in much more detail. We've now taken PulseNet into the whole genome arena, and what that's allowed us to do is get rid of a lot of the noise and actually get even more specific. So now you would have, a, 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 let's say, a hundred cases that had a similar fingerprint pattern. It turns out when you do whole genome sequencing, you find out that those were actually three different outbreaks. And so you can get rid of some of the noise that might have been confusing your investigation and hone in more on the cases that are actually related to the outbreak, find the source, and then try to do some sort of prevention strategy. But there is still some confusion, isn't there, especially in the prepackaged arena. You were actually talking about yesterday how when things uh, come in complex packaging where there's multiple uh, sources from different suppliers in the food, so a mixed salad or uh, something where the vegetables have been sourced from three different locations, possibly different countries. What are the issues that arise with that? You know, absolutely. Ingredients are a huge issue. So if you identify uh, epidemiologically that the common source is a particular uh, pre-prepared food, well, in that pre-prepared food, you often find six, seven, eight, ten, twelve ingredients. And so, is it the pepper? Is it the salt? Is it the is it the is it the leafy green? Is it a is it is it a is it a green pepper or a red pepper? What else is in there? And so, you then end up tracing back twelve different ingredients, and you often get lost in that trace back. So, we can often identify quickly and rapidly through epidemiological um, uh, studies the actual sort of food product, but then digging down into that gets more challenging. I do think whole genome sequencing has helped, right? Because now we can go back and we can actually find pepper. We can try to culture that pepper if we find salmonella in the pepper and we sequence it and it's the same whole genome pattern as patients who are getting sick. Wow, we might have a hit and we might actually see it is an ingredient. So we've been able to uh, elucidate some of the ingredients, but it's still a challenge. It's still a work in progress and it's still, it still takes some shoe leather epidemiology, as we like to say. You still have to get, get there and actually investigate, talk to people and start, try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, so one of the other things that you were talking about is the different uh, forms of outbreak in salmonella that we can get and the types of food sources that they come through. Some of them really surprised me. Um, for example, breakfast cereal. I've never heard of that being um, conducive with the salmonella outbreak. Are there a lot of things that maybe people are missing in causes? I mean, if you look at the total number of salmonella cases uh, that we get in the U.S. that are laboratory confirmed, it's somewhere around fifty to 60,000. You know, of those, we may have a source on 10%. So there are still a lot of sporadic cases out there that we don't know exactly what the cause is. So I think a case that everyone is really interested in changing track is the Remain Lettuce outbreak sure. in the States last year and still continuing in some ways? In some ways, yes. I think we've, you know, we've had leafy green issues now for over a decade. And, you know, the, it's, it's, a, it's once again a challenging industry and a challenging area because we're dealing with uh, big fields and um, irrigation and, you know, wild animals and, you know, various other sources. And, and so, you know, the key is, is how do we help that industry improve how they're doing things so that we can, you know, rapidly trace things back to a particular farm so that farm can improve its 
its uh, its irrigation, clean up its water, etc., versus just saying, "Oh my God, it's romaine lettuce," and let's shut down the entire industry. And that's that's unfortunately what happened in this particular case because when you can't trace things back to a particular farm or field, um, you're forced to say, "We know romaine lettuce is contaminated, but we're not sure where it's coming from." Yeah, I mean, you were talking about your involvement in finding the source, the irrigation problem. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think, you know, CDC is really involved in human illness, and we're involved in, in, in getting patterns from, uh, from PulseNet, analyzing those patterns, those patterns that relate to each other, uh, identifying potential clusters, and then investing in those clusters. And in this case, again, it was a, it was a widespread uh, multi-state outbreak that led, that was in STEC, so it was E. coli 157, um, that you know that led to uh, the epidemiological data showed that it was this it was it, that it was romaine lettuce. Then, when it comes to actually going on the farm and doing regulation, that's when our regulatory partners get involved in the FDA in the U.S. and the USDA if it's a if it's a, if it's a, if it's a meat product, etc. So we were yeah we were lucky enough to go um, and FDA invited us to go along, and you learn a lot when you're actually there, seeing how that field investigation takes place and 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 then and finding that it was in the irrigation water um, you know really was a, a a big change to what we had done in the past in leafy greens and we hadn't found it in irrigation water and so so this was a big big you know big important uh, event and, and and I think it, it again helped the farm help the industry realize where they can make changes and you know get our food safer what would be the advice for when you are diagnosing these types of diseases? What's the report process and how often should it be done? You know, I think it's, it, you know, I, I, in the, it, it's challenging uh, for a couple of reasons. In the U.S. now, we have a lot more, I'm sure in Australia you do as well, but we have a lot more culture-independent diagnostic tests being used. And, you know, as a, I'm a clinician myself, so wearing my, you know, wearing my clinical hat, I think they're incredible tests. We get rapid results. We know if it's salmonella, uh, vibrio, or something else. Uh, the challenge from a public, with my public health hat on, the challenge is I don't get the isolate. I can't link it to anything. I just get a salmonella diagnosis, and I don't know, know whether it's a salmonella redding or a salmonella infantis, and, and like I talked about yesterday, being linked to chicken or turkey and various things. So, so yeah, it's... I think for the general practitioner, it's important for them to know that number one, you know, these culture-independent diagnostic tests are great. They lead to rapid identification. But from a public health standpoint, behind the scenes, we still need a culture. And so, you know, uh, I always like to tell people, uh, the you know, don't please send the stool still. Please send you know the thing to your local uh, uh, laboratory so that we can still do cultures. We can still monitor for outbreaks, clusters, et cetera, um, and, and, and actually monitor for resistance. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about with us? No, it's been great. It's been great sitting down and chatting with you. I hope your uh, listeners get a little something out of this, and um, thanks for inviting me to participate. No worries. Hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Australia, Tom. Thank you very much. Okay, so after that interview, you're probably already really grossed out and scared to eat ever again, but I've got some bad news for you. Seafood-borne disease was another hot topic down here, and I'm about to meet up with the professor saying that we don't have enough education in this area yet. We're here today at the Melbourne Exhibition Centre with Professor Shukafe Shamsi. Welcome to the Medical Republic podcast. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity for talking to uh, GPs about seafood-borne parasites. 
Yeah, so we're doing this interview after lunch. I myself had some salmon. Should I be worried? <laughs> uh, um, not really. Uh, I had kingfish for lunch today, which was actually really good. Um, seafood is a healthy source of protein. We don't argue with that. We agree with that. And I think it's really good that people get encouraged to consume more seafood. Um, what my research is trying to do is, uh, because we consume more seafood than before, obviously comes diseases that we didn't have before. It's not only because we consume more seafood, it's also because recent changes to our oceans, for example, climate change or increase in the temperature, it affects a lot of aspects of how oceans work, including parasite populations. And as a result, we have seen a number of uh, human cases uh, that people got infected with parasites and uh, it was because they consumed raw seafood. So we think it's really important, especially medical doctors are aware of these parasites and they know that they exist here in Australia, they can affect people so that we can get the best outcome for people who love to eat seafood. And how big is the problem in Australia? How often are we seeing these types of infection? That's a really good question because uh, I'll give you some background information first. That's a question that we ask us too. Um, Australia is a multicultural country. You find a lot of different types of seafood all in one spot. Even in a small city, you see Japanese restaurant next to Spanish, next to Italian, and it just goes on and on and on. And seafood is very popular because of its healthy, uh, you know, it's because of its health impacts. Um, on the other hand, we've been doing research for about 16 years on Australian fish, and we found that actually fish parasites are quite often found in uh, fish that are sold in fish markets. And a lot of these parasites are actually are transmissible to humans. So you expect that if you put this high level of consumption of seafood and high level of presence of parasites in seafood, you see a lot of human cases. So we did a, a search literature review to see how many human cases have been reported. And interestingly, we only found three recent cases that come up with literature review. Then we ask ourselves, could be some misdiagnosis out there? Now that we know misdiagnosis exists and we know that the case, you know, like a lot of time doctors don't know it this happens, we try to dig into literature a little bit deeper and we didn't only rely on what comes up through Google search. We went through the libraries and really, really old literatures. And then we actually found that in the first half of the 20th century, there are plenty of reports of infection with fish parasites in Australian population up to about 1950. But then there is a gap of 60 years that there is no publication because those experts, they retired, they passed away, and they never got uh, replaced by similar expertise. And due to lack of publications and lack of knowledge, clearly there is not much guidelines about seafood safety. If we compare seafood safety guidelines in Australia with similar guidelines in European Union, for example, we see that we are far behind and we are surrounded by ocean in Australia. 
So just going a little bit more back to the diagnosis, in earlier this morning I was listening to a microbiology session and they were talking about the Romanian uh, lettuce outbreak um, in the US and they were saying that one of the hardest things about diagnosing that and finding the source of the um, virus or the disease was actually the fact that it was people were consuming it in a mixed um, salad or a, a pre-packaged mixed meal. Is that a common theme as well? Um, yeah, that was a very interesting talk. In different ways, we have similar issues when it comes to seafood born. Uh, there are two issues with them. First is we don't have any diagnostic test in Australia. There is absolutely no test. And the other issue we have here is when we talk about seafood-borne parasites, we don't talk about one species. We are actually talking about group of species. And this group of species cause different symptoms. And quite often symptoms are uh, easily confused with food poisoning. So these two add to the complexity of the issue of underestimating the extent of the uh, prevalence in Australia. So if it's being so underestimated and in some ways understudied, how can we get to the point where it becomes a clear enough issue in the public sphere that then we can have those regulatory changes needed to prevent infection? Yeah, I think the first thing is awareness and the second thing is education. To raise the awareness, uh, we need uh, everyone do his or her part. And I think there's a big responsibility for our medical doctors because when someone gets sick, the first point of contact are our GPs. So they need to know and they need to take actions and consider differential diagnosis if a patient comes to their practice and says, he or she has history of eating seafood. They need to know that and they need to consider it as a possibility. And then when they diagnose that, if the diagnosis is positive, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to publish those cases. And then the second one is, of course, investment and doing more, uh, more investment toward research and educating all the stakeholders, not only medical doctors. And I was also just going to ask you, you mentioned earlier that uh, the European Union is far ahead of us uh, in this matter. Could you maybe give some examples of regulation that they have in this industry that we don't have? For example, cooking uh, seafood is recommended. There are guidelines for freezing fish. It depends on the size of the fish, of course, the freezing should be longer time. And they also have guidelines about the right temperature, uh, that in what temperature for how long fish fillet needs to be kept frozen before it gets used raw. And that significantly minimizes the risk of these diseases. However, those guidelines cannot get fully adopted here in Australia because our research shows we have some unique species in Australia. We have we share some of our parasite species of seafood with other countries and then we have some species that they don't have. So we can use those guidelines as a basis but we need to do research here and come up with the proper guidelines which is really simple. Cook the fish if you want to eat it raw, freeze it but what temperature and how long we need to find out. Again, very simple 
research, not a rocket science, and uh, things like that that we can easily do here. Another very important things that we can educate public easily do, especially in Australia that a lot of people love fishing, is after you catch the fish, immediately got the fish, remove the viscera and internal organs, because a lot of these parasites are there, and if you don't do it right away, like people do, for example, in Netherlands or many other countries, these parasites get the chance to migrate to the flesh of the fish and increase the likelihood of infection. So if you are fishing out there today, you should definitely cut your fish before you take them home. <laughs> yeah, that, that's highly recommended. That's really good. But don't throw back those to the water again because you actually help the parasites to continue the life cycle. If you can, put it in a bag and dispose it properly like other, uh, you know, like waste materials at home. Yeah. Thank you so much, Professor, for coming on the Medical Republic podcast. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk to your audience. Thanks for joining me down here in Melbourne this week. Tune in next time and we're going to be back in Sydney and talking about a new lens technology which may just be able to slow down the progression of myopia or short-sightedness as I call it.